Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Connect on blogtalkradio.com. Catch us on the web at umconnect.info. Welcome to this episode of Connect. I'm Michael Rich, the Web and Communications Manager for the Western North Carolina Conference. And today's guest is Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He is originally from King, North Carolina, and he's a speaker, writer, pastor. He lives in an intentional community called the Rutba House, directs the school conversion, all of that from Durham, North Carolina. He's also a Duke Divinity grad. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for giving us your time today. So um, 30 minutes goes real quickly here on radio. So uh, let's just start out with a few questions. Uh, give us a little of your background. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Your schools, that kind of thing. Well, I was raised in Stokes County, North Carolina. Um, among the Baptists, I'll have to confess, although I have Methodist cousins, and um, was yeah, raised there in the 80s. Um, by folks who really loved the Bible and loved Jesus. They made me memorize it in the King James Version. If it was good mm-hmm. enough for Jesus, it was good enough for us. Um, That's right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, d- deeply grateful for the community where I grew up up there and went to public schools and um, eventually found my way down to uh, Duke Divinity School after wandering about the world a bit. Um, I studied up in Philadelphia at a Baptist school called Eastern College Okay. And so you ended up at Duke, um, and that was in the early 2000s. Um, That's right. When you yeah. were there. Yeah. So yeah, it, was a, it was a great, we were starting a community here in Durham at the time, so it was a great connection to be able to um, study theology and the history of the church while also trying to figure out how to practice our faith uh, in daily life. Okay. Well, um, you, you've had a call on your life. You wouldn't be doing what you're doing without a call. Tell us about your call story. Uh, how did that come about? Yeah, I really feel like we get, we get called um, by our communities. Um, at least the, the kind of call that I want to respond to is, is a call that comes from God, but that comes through uh, the community of people that that we're all sort of tied up with and so I, I, I kind of understand my own call that way I, I'm i a preacher because the people who raised me and taught me the Bible uh, encouraged me to preach and to keep preaching and so I've been doing that since my late teens um, but I, I think uh, also because I'm part of this uh, family of God that crosses all kinds of dividing lines that we have inherited in our society um, that, you know, my call has been about um, trying to live out the gospel and practice it uh, uh, with people who don't look like me or haven't had the same experiences that I've had. So I think a lot of my um, mentors and leaders, uh, you know, people who've, who've sort of walked me down this path of call are people who I've who I've met because I've been part of the family of God and who've really challenged me to expand my vision of what that means. Hmm. Now, I know that you are an associate pastor now in an uh, African-American church. 
Oh, that's Tell right. Us about that experience. Yes, I mean, as I was raised Baptist in a church that was all white, um, but you know, I was raised in the sort of post-racial time uh, when at least many of us thought that we had moved beyond race. Um, I was certainly taught, you know, by the Sunday school teachers and by my parents to be colorblind. Um, but uh, I think I came to realize, uh, largely because I got involved in politics as a young person, mm. that race still, you know, deeply shaped the patterns of our public life. And um, through sort of waking up to that and realizing that uh, in some ways, you know, the institutional racism that I participated in was real, even if, um, you know, if we didn't have any hate in our hearts, uh, I think is how we would have said it then, um, mm. that, uh, you know, that there was still work to do, uh, sort of to wake up, to open our eyes and see. And I think the person who helped me the most with that was uh, Reverend William Barber, who I met uh, after I had served in the Senate with uh, Strom Thurmond as a page and had uh, sort of become disappointed in the uh, religious right, the moral majority that I had thought was uh, sort of a way to connect faith and politics. Um, I came back to North Carolina and he was directing the Human Relations Commission. I met him and recognized him as a powerful preacher and so invited him to preach in my home church, um, not really thinking about the fact that, uh, you know, no black preacher had ever preached in that church. His willingness to come was uh, uh, ultimately uh, a sort of demonstration to me that he really believes this gospel that brings us together, uh, but also his willingness to tell the truth and to you know tell me as a as a younger person uh, that I was from Klan country, that this you know had shaped the history of that place and our view of things, but that um, but that because we were brothers in Christ, that there was a real potential to find a new way together. Hmm. So William Barber being one of the people that's influenced your call, um, who are some of the folks in your deep past? Who, any names you would call as people that would uh, be influential in that call? Well, I think the pastor at that little church, uh, Jim Baldwin is his name. He serves a church in Newton mm. Grove now, but uh, he was um, he was there when I was dealing with all this kind of uh, you know discernment. Listened to me and loved me well. And uh, you know when uh, when I said, "Hey, I met this Reverend Barber. How about we have him come preach?" Uh, he said, mm. "Sure, so- sounds great." And uh, I think people like that who um, have been willing to walk with me and help me find my way have been, uh, yeah, deeply influential. So um, are there other folks in this day and time that are shaping your call, uh, theologians, uh, professors, those kinds of uh, people that uh, you look to? Who are the folks I listen to? Um, You know, one of the things that um, I mean, I, there, there are lots of great books and um, people who are, you know, leading deeply faithful lives and ministries. But um, but I think the place where I am most often kind of uh, challenged and invited to see the gospel more clearly is by folks who are really uh, living it out and often in quiet and under the radar ways. I think about my friend Julia Dinsmore. Uh, who's been a, a kind of faith-rooted community organizer in 
Minneapolis for the last 30-some years. Everybody calls her Grandma Julia. And uh, she wrote this great poem called My Name Is Not Those People. Um, hmm. It's it's worth Googling. Uh, it's it's all over the place these days, often in, uh, on the wall and social service agencies and other places. But but really somebody who, who takes seriously that, uh, you know, what the psalm says, that the stones that the builders rejected has become the the cornerstone and that that's marvelous in our eyes that that's really where we see the gospel coming to life and that that some of the most exciting things God has ever done and is still doing is happening among those folks who are kind of called together to live a radically different way I think about these guys I was just with them yesterday I I visit with a group of writers on death row here in North Carolina once a week and uh, and they're just a deep source of hope for me because you know, they're, they're people who have had incredibly difficult lives and uh, have certainly faced the worst that our society has to offer. But um, but even in this kind of status of being condemned, they are coming together and, and crafting uh, a message of hope out of their own um, deep darkness. And, uh, yeah, th- those are the kind of folks who really inspire me and keep me believing that um, that this thing our God is doing is – uh well worth whatever it costs. Hmm. Yeah, I I had a feeling you would answer that way, uh having read some of your writing and uh having seen you in person and uh I I think honestly as a pastor uh and as a communicator uh the people that resonate for me are also um the people on the ground uh getting it done day to day and uh you know I'm thankful for the theologians that taught me and some of the great pastors that uh, have written and whatnot. But on the whole, I can point to a lady in little churches all across Western North Carolina that continue to hold up a light that. uh, Well, and I think about how just some of the most faithful gospel work uh, I've witnessed here in North Carolina is, is done by people who, who haven't written books. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it takes up a good, I say this as a writer, it takes up a good bit of your time if you, if you write books, you don't have as much time to do other things. But I, I think of uh, Nelson and Joyce Johnson over in Greensboro. Um, I mean, an incredibly faithful pastoral ministry combined with a ministry of cultivating community there over decades. And uh, their beloved community center is really, a, I think, a model for what uh, asset-based community development and, and, and local ministry that's really holistic and uh, and it's about building up the the whole parish is really about um, just, yeah, the, I, I would count them among the best in terms of, uh, uh, you know, ministering the gospel here in our state. But um, but so few people know them. Mm. Well, thank you for letting our audience know some of these people and uh, and for holding them up. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about your early ministry. So you're called to ministry. Um you did a lot of different things. Um, you ended up at Duke. Uh, what were uh, some of your early ministry experiences? Well, Jesus called me to um, to listen to people on the streets when I was in D.C., and I did that there and in Europe and in Philadelphia when I was studying as an undergrad. I think uh, those spaces of being with folks on the streets and listening to their wisdom, being invited into their community and 
and really finding the church that uh, intersected with their community um, was a was a great invitation to me, and it's it's how I ended up in intentional community. It was it was largely you know folks on the streets who had the experience of uh, of homelessness who who told me uh, about the good news of hospitality houses and Christians who live together in community, and so they kind of uh, walked me into realizing that this was a vocation for for me. Okay. Well, let's take a break, and then after the break, we're going to come back and talk specifically about Rutba House and, and that uh, work in Durham. So um, let's hear a word from our uh, call and vocation team. Hello, I'm Jim Parsons, the chair of the Call and Vocation team for the Western North Carolina Conference. We are thrilled to partner with UM Connect to bring you some unique conversations in 2016. Our team is focused on cultivating a culture of call within our conference. For more about our work, please visit us at isgodcallingme.org. The United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina is a ministry of the church for the church whose mission is to build a church for generations to come. We fulfill this vision by investing in people, as well as helping churches and related institutions invest the financial resources that God has given to them. My name is David Snipes, and we look forward to the day when you give your United Methodist Foundation a call. And you can find out more about the United Methodist Foundation in Western North Carolina at our sponsor page on the show's website, which is umconnect.info. And so we're here today with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He's on by phone uh, from Durham. Um, so uh, you uh, and your wife started the Rutba House in 2003. Uh, I take it you were still a student at, uh, at Duke Divinity School at the time. Um, tell us about that experience. What what was that all about? How did uh, that all get started? Well, <clears throat> when the United States uh, announced a war on terror uh, back in, you know, after the uh, 9-11 attacks of 2001, we mm-hmm. were living in Philadelphia at the time and were spending quite a bit of our time with people who uh, were uh, experiencing homelessness. A lot of those people were veterans and it was really listening to them and to the uh, to the experience they had had processing their own trauma from war and trying to make sense of the gospel in the midst of that that uh, that we uh, felt a strong call really to um, to try to practice the uh, the way of peacemaking that Jesus teaches us and shows us in the gospel um, and uh, we learned about this group called the Christian Peacemaker Teams that had. Uh, begun in the 1980s and was really an attempt to do direct action uh, in the midst of conflicts around the world, we learned that they were building a peace team in Iraq, and we joined that team and were there when the shock and awe bombing happened uh, in the spring of '03. And in the midst of that uh, terrible bombing of that city and that country, uh, we had an experience of receiving hospitality from uh, people at this town called Rutba, the doctor there actually saved a couple of our friends' lives after they hit a piece of the shrapnel in the road and wrecked and split their heads open uh, there in the middle of the desert. And we um, we were moved by their hospitality and really wanted to um, 
practice that hospitality back here. You know, they're, they're kind of picking our friends up off the side of the road. We, I was raised on the Bible, and I, I understood it as a Good Samaritan story that mm-hmm. these folks who had uh, who had been our enemies, uh, like the Samaritans were at least imagined to be the enemies of the Jews, um, these good Iraqis, these good Muslims had saved our friends. And that act of hospitality, we, we, really, we really felt like it was the kind of peacemaking that was deeply needed uh, so far away from home, but also back in the places that we've come from. And I think part of what we're realizing, even in this uh, campaign this year, is just how deeply divided our society is. It's it's often tempting to think that, you know, the um, the violence that we've inherited, the deep divisions are over there somewhere, you know, to mm. um, to think about ISIS or something. But but you know, when you really listen to the folks who are crying out right here on the streets of Charlotte, right here, you know, in neighborhoods uh, that are being gentrified in Durham and in uh, Greensboro and Winston Salem, uh, the, these are people who are very close to us, people who, um, you know, may work in the uh, kitchen of the place where you eat your dinner after church every week. Uh, people who go to whose kids go to school with your kids and who we're not very far away from, and yet these dividing lines really keep us from knowing one another. And that was really the vision of Rootba House to be a place where we could come together and uh, try to practice the hospitality we had received when we were in Rootba. Okay. And so, what does uh, daily life look like for you in that? Community. So we try to be a, a community of people who begin the day in prayer together. We we use a common prayer, a liturgy for ordinary radicals. It's a it's a, um, a a liturgy that we help to create along with other communities around the world, really, and um, and that we uh, gather and begin the day uh, praying together with not just all these folks today, but all the people through history who've who've prayed that way. And um and then, you know, our members, uh people who are part of this community have various work that we're about during the day, but we gather again in the evening to eat an evening meal together and then we have a regular schedule of times to meet together and uh listen to one another and you know, plan for community life. I think this sort of daily rhythm is a way of uh of really sharing life together and because we're sharing life together we're we have the occasion to um to have conversation about what it really means to live the way of life that that Jesus invited us into so that's been the kind of ongoing conversation here over the last 13 years and it's a great gift to be able to do that together with people who are coming out of prison people who are coming off the streets people who are coming out of uh uh college or uh, some sort of career, uh, people who are coming from different backgrounds um, but are invited really by the uh, the call to live the way of Jesus to have this conversation about, well, what does that mean in terms of how we spend our money, how we eat, how we spend our time, um, how we treat our neighbors. Okay. Yeah, uh, a couple of weeks ago we uh, spoke with a, a, a small community in Todd, North Carolina, and uh, I don't know if you've run into Brandon Wrencher. Uh, oh, sure, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so he's got the community up in Todd. My my son is actually a member of that community. And, you know, it's quite a fascinating thing to 
um, see the transformation in a 20-year-old's life that's involved in this kind of community. It's different than what you have, but uh, still trying to live lives of prayer and attention to a small community. In, uh, well, you Wilkes know, on County. one level, it's it's a very simple thing. We're just talking about how to pray, how to eat, how to live. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, it seems to me that this is what Jesus was doing with the 12 disciples, with the uh, folks who, you know, eventually get sent out two by two. It's um, what Jesus is offering us, I think, is a way of being really human and of living the lives we were made for. Uh, not that we have the power to do that in and of ourselves, but um, but but Jesus takes on flesh and moves into our world to show us what uh, it means to be a real human being. And I um, I guess I you know I was raised in the church and I was captivated by these stories growing up, um, but the the form of uh, simply gathering once a week or twice a week or however often the church gathers uh, uh, has somewhat confused us, I think, about what church really is. Uh, I mean, the worship is important, of course, but the weekly or biweekly worship uh, isn't isn't really the church. Uh, mm-hmm. The churching is what we do with one another uh, in all the spaces where we live and move and have our being. And I think that these communities have really grown out of a desire of people to uh, to have some help and to help one another figure out what that means. Mm, agree. Well, let's uh, move on to the school of conversion. That's something else that you're uh, doing out of uh, Durham. Tell me about what that is, how it came about, and um, how someone can get involved. Well, at School for Conversion, we say that we're working to make surprising friendships possible, and it really did grow out of our life here at Rootba House. Uh, uh, once we had been doing this for a little while and people uh, started to hear about what we were doing, partly because I write books and tell stories, uh, we we had uh, more people than we could um, invite into the community who inquired about, you know, uh, wh- whether they could come and learn. And so School for Conversion is really uh, a kind of ongoing attempt to create spaces where this learning can happen um, outside of the daily life of the community here at Rootba House. And uh, part of what we're trying to experiment in is how the, the principles that we've learned here, the, the practices and the, and the uh, uh, kind of habits of uh, a life of a hospitality house can, can play out in other spheres of life. Um, and ultimately, I mean, that's the... Um, that's the work that the church is always about, right? How do we how do we invite mm-hmm. people into the story and help them imagine how they can live the story wherever they are? So we've done that um, in a few particular ways, and uh, I think across these different program areas that we've worked in, that we've learned that bringing people together who wouldn't be together otherwise is really the the heart of what we're doing. So we do it with youth here in Durham. Uh, youth who come from uh, different backgrounds but who uh, are going into middle school and who uh, face the challenge of a uh, what's sometimes called a school-to-prison pipeline, um, mm-hmm. kids who could very well get caught up in our criminal justice system uh, at, at a young age. We're inviting them onto small teams where they are um, 
are really uh, learning about themselves and about their community and about how they can be leaders in communities like Durham and um, uh, and, and doing that together with people who they might not know otherwise. So, you know, a, a recently um, immigrated family uh, uh, together with... Uh, uh, you know, African American youth from uh, even the same neighborhood uh, are people who might live on the same block but not get to know each other. So, so the Walltown Inspiring Youth Program has been a place to invite those young people together. Uh, we also do this work inside of prisons in partnership with Duke Divinity Schools, so that students who go to Duke now can take classes inside of prisons through a program we run called Project Turn, and. Um, and their their professors from Duke will teach them in this class, but uh, half of the class is made up of students from the prison, people that have been locked away for various reasons and who they wouldn't uh, have opportunity otherwise. And it's been a space to imagine how that kind of being together uh, is a real alternative to the models of ministry that are about um, serving uh, um, incarcerated people or serving impoverished uh, uh, neighborhoods, that that to create a learning space like that is, is really to believe that everyone has something to bring. And I think people don't only learn that, but they feel it, they see it in practice when they're in those classes. Hmm. Well, I've got uh, on the show's website, there is a, a link to your website, and I'll make sure School of Conversion's there. So if more people want to find out what's going on, they can do that. Um over the years, your writing has been very influential uh, to lots of people. Um, what's, I, from your perspective, what has been the most influential to your readers? What what has gotten the most response and uh, feedback? You know, I I hear the most from people who are serious about their faith and who appreciate honesty about what it really means to live out faith. I mean, it's one thing to tell a story, uh, you know, to try to to try to attract people to, you know, come join something or to give some money to something. Those those stories have a certain arc to them, and uh, you know, they they naturally are about trying to make people feel uh, at least positively toward whatever the. Uh, the center of that narrative is, but I've tried. To, I've tried to tell stories that are honest uh, as a way of trying to tell the the gospel story. Um, I mean, I think at the, at the end of the day, I'm a storyteller because I was raised by storytellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but uh, the the story I want to tell is the story that the gospels tell, and I think it's um, it's a story that's deeply needed because uh, we live in a world of masks and pretense and so many lies um there's a lot of um there's a lot of performance that happens uh performing a story that people want to be true and i think yeah what what i've the feedback i've gotten from people is that a a kind of authentic telling of the real messiness of uh of real life and the way that God shows up in the midst of that is, um, I think, in a way that we preachers are sometimes uh, uh, tricked into into not believing. Uh, I think it's actually uh, something that gives people hope. 
because everyone knows that their own life is messy. And if they can mm-hmm. see hope in the midst of someone else's messiness, I think that's invitational. Um, yeah. Well, cool. thanks for asking. Yeah. And um, is there anything particular you're working on right now that we can look forward to hearing or seeing? Yeah. Well, um, I'm writing a book on um, the way my faith and our faith uh, here in North Carolina, here in the South, here in America, uh, has has had this long history of um, a relationship to race. And um, I think in our public life right now, um, race has come to the fore in a way that uh, uh, maybe it hasn't it hasn't been as a, a clear and present a reality in public conversation. Uh, and in some ways, I think the beginning of the Obama presidency was uh, an invitation for some people to believe that we had moved beyond race. You know, if if an African American can be elected to the highest office in the land, then maybe race doesn't matter anymore. And I think after eight years, it's uh, it's clear that race matters as much as ever. And um, I think Christians are engaging that in all kinds of ways. But w- one of the things that, um, well, again, just trying to be honest about the story is to uh, is to recognize that Christians have always been involved in race and on both sides, right? That um, sure. that the uh, you know the the great resistance America's original sin of racism <coughs> comes from those enslaved people who heard liberation in the Jesus story. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they heard it from their masters who called themselves Christian. Mm. So, um, okay. <clears throat> excuse me. So anyway, there's, <clears throat> um, that's what I'm trying to write about. Okay. Well, uh, we've sort of run out of time, but you get a final word. What, what would you like to say to folks, uh, listening to this today? Well, especially since you're based in Western North Carolina, um, I'd just say, you know, that's that's my place. That's the place I was raised. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the Hanging Rock in Stokes County is uh, as close as you can get to God. That's where I go to sit mm-hmm. and listen. Uh, so I'm deeply grateful for people who serve that place and it, one of the things that I'm just increasingly aware of is how how much we've been lied to over generations, um, and I think necessarily lied to ourselves um, in 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 this place. And uh, and so I'm uh, grateful to ministers who are trying to tell the truth, uh, not in a way that sort of shakes the finger and points it at other people, but uh, but says uh, you know all of us um, are are called to account by this gospel. And as we're called to account, we also know that there's hope um, that Jesus has met us right here in right here in North Carolina, right here in our history and is inviting us into something new. So I'm grateful to all of the ministers who are doing that work and doing it among people I love. All right. Well, thanks so much for giving your time today, Jonathan. And thanks for good being to be on with the you. show. Sorry, sorry this cold has uh, got me to coughing here at the end, but uh, good to talk. Good to talk with you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to us on Blog Talk Radio. The show will be available shortly as a podcast at the Blog Talk Radio page and on the show's website and on iTunes. So keep up with the latest at umconnect.info. 
And we'll be back next week connecting some United Methodists and their story. Thanks to our sponsors, the Western North Carolina Conference and the United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina. You can find out more about them on the sponsors section of the website, umconnect.info. I'm Michael Rich, and you've been listening to Connect.